Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 121, Walking with Kids Mental Health. Welcome. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I am alongside my favorite licensed therapist and Argyle expert, my husband, Matt Krieg. Hello. Hey, Matt. And we have our producer and, of course, that most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. Hey, Steve. And guys, last week, if you listened in, we talked about how to engage our own overwhelming thoughts and feelings. And at the end, if you guys remember, I asked Dr. Allison Cook about how we can care for our kids in that overwhelming thoughts and feelings space. This week, we're going to focus on that. How can we walk with kids if and maybe when they have issues with their mental health? And guys, I know we talk most often about sexuality and how it relates to the gospel, but I talk with parents all the time who have kids who identify at some level of LGBT and they wrestle with anxiety and depression or something. There's there's usually, there's sometimes, maybe often, uh, there's multiple things going on. So if you're wondering if we're going off brand, we're not. <laughs> and again, the theme of this podcast is talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day, and that includes our kids. So this is really a pivotal conversation. And the person who's going to help teach us today about walking well with these little ones is Dr. Matthew Stanford. Matt, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. We are so glad to have you. Now, guys, Matt received his Ph.D. from Baylor University and is CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institution in Houston, Texas. He's also adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. He's the author of Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness, and the book that we're going to be talking about today to help us walk alongside kids and their mental health is called Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and adolescent mental illness. We're excited to dive in, to be honest with you. I got some questions. Uh, But first, let's get to know you better and you listeners, we say you, uh, through our question of the week from last week, which is, what is your favorite life hack? I know like life hacks were super trending like years ago, but they're not. They're back in style on the podcast today. Uh, but we want to know because uh, actually one of my friends, Sarah, asked me that. She's like, you should ask people because I want to know some more life hacks. So Matt, not my Argyle Matt, but Matthew Stanford, can you please let us know what's your favorite life hack? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I do have one. I really honestly don't have very many hacks. <laughs> I'm just kind of a hack myself. <laughs> I, uh, my one hack is that I... Um, how I, I if you if your toilet gets clogged and you don't have a plunger, yes. uh, you put a half a cup of dish dish soap followed by a pitcher full of hot water, and I promise you it will it will clean it right out. Oh my goodness! Good to know. This is helpful with the children. <laughs> Um, we all our jaws dropped when we started talking toilet. We're like, where are we going? <laughs> uh, Matt Creek, Argyle expert, Matt. What's your deal? What listeners stood out to you? Yeah, I really liked what Hannah said. Hey, Laurie. Hey, Matt. Hey, Steve. So I have a money hack, which I like to use. Um, So what I do is that I will save all my $5 bills. I never spend them. I keep them aside until the end of the year. And then I have a whole stack of extra cash, which comes in handy during the holiday season. You know, I can have it, spend it on... um, 
extra Christmas presents, uh, give it away to missionaries as love gifts, or, you know, buy myself a little bonus thing. Um, yeah, I think it's a great money saving hack to have around the house. Love it. Which shout out to Hannah. She's been on this podcast a few times. Her answers must be rocking. There's a few of you that were like, are we best friends? We're going to pick your answers every time. So we see you. And hello, Hannah. Welcome back. Steve, what's your favorite life hack? Okay, well, uh, what I got, I don't feel like is super, you know, profound or unique, but YouTube. Yes. I mean, is your favorite life hack? Yes, because I am not handy. I don't know how to do stuff. And there's a video for whatever kind of dishwasher repair or toilet plunge. Yeah, I'm sure that there's a demonstration of (laughs) of that hack on YouTube. So, yeah, I mean, my son, who does a lot with cars and he's very mechanically inclined, but he always says to me, Dad, when in doubt, tube it out. That's a thing. <laughs> That's what he said. I don't. It's his thing. Why don't we have shirts right now? I know. I'm sad. Yeah. Okay. I appreciated this. Hi, my name's Heather Stump, and I live in Pennsylvania. I believe that programmable coffee makers were the greatest invention of the 20th century. She is right. Uh, Because that's literally, I think, my only life hack, uh, which is setting the coffee the night before, because I'm usually the coffee maker in the family. Although Mm -hmm. Matt has been trying to see me and know me and love me by making it and setting it the night before, because I'm Mm -hmm. up at like four o'clock every day. Yeah. I was going to say my favorite life hack is having married someone who makes the coffee the night before. Well done, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, guys, let's dive into the gospel conversation and then look toward the conversation about how to walk well with our kids or kids in our life. So Matt, Matthew, who is our guest today, we ask this set of questions to every guest. And it is it is these. (laughs) If the gospel is I am more loved than I imagine and yet more sinful than I believe. When was that gospel first good news for you and how is it still? You know, I think for me, um, I mean, I grew up in a Christian family, and I did the whole Christian school and all that good stuff, but I, I think that really came to life for me when I was in college. Um, you know, probably when I met my wife, actually. She was really the first person I ever met that, like, really lived her faith every day. And uh, and that, that really came to life for me then. And, for, and now, you know, in the, in the organization I run and the work we do, you know, working with people that are you know, afflicted with mental illness and very serious mental illness. Uh, you know, I really, you know, God teaches me every day uh, just how using mental illness, just how big grace is, because mm-hmm. mental illness is a real theology changer. It's messy and muddy, uh, and uh, it requires an enormous amount of grace to work with people who aren't fully in control of their thoughts and their feelings and their behaviors. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just it, that just really, again, just shows me the kind of grace and love that God showed us so that we can show others. Love it. So why did you write this latest book, Grace for the Children? I wrote this book, uh, you know, the easy answer is I wrote this book because this is the book everybody wanted me to write after I wrote the other one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wrote Grace for the Afflicted is is a, about uh, disorders, mostly in adults. Uh, I mean, I didn't write it specifically for adults, but I focused on that. And then, you know, as I would present on it or talk about it or, or be places, people would say, well, hey, you know, what about this and children or what about children? So really a lot of people just requesting uh, 
that I would, you know, write about children's disorders and, and issues related to children. Uh, I mean, really, the, the reality is, is that, you know, 50% of all chronic mental health conditions are in place by 14 years old and 75% by 24 years old. So really mental illness, what we think of as mental illness, is really an issue of, of childhood or, of, or adolescence and young adulthood. So, uh, you know, it really makes sense to have a book that looks at uh, at these mental, these mental health issues in children, but from a faith perspective as well. Uh, and, you know, people in psychological distress Families that are struggling with these kind of issues with their children, they're more likely to go to a clergy before they go to a mental health care provider or a physician. So the hope was to help equip the church. And that's such a a critical thing right now, you know, with anxiety, depression, just everything that's spiking up. So ideally, you know, I was kind of picturing a, a pastor perhaps sitting down with this book and reading it and being like, because perhaps he's, it's usually pastors pick up books because there's a family in their church that they're like, oh no, I got to figure out how to deal with this. So what do you hope for that pastor who picks up your book and is reading it? What do you hope they walk away with? Well, I hope it gives them a, a better understanding as, you know, of these illnesses as real illnesses that, you know, they have a, uh, you know, they're a complex interaction of biology and environment uh, to kind of help them understand, you know, how they're diagnosed, how they're treated. Uh, what an individual with those problems might be going through, but also from a faith perspective, you know, what role do they have as a pastor? What can they do to really minister to those individuals? And, uh, you know, a better sense that the church does have a significant role to play in mental health recovery. Mm. Yep. We got to do it. If we're going to care for one group, we've got to make sure we're caring for everyone, which, okay, you write your chapters, you write this book in such a way that's easily digestible. Uh, and, you know, the way you're talking right now, I'm like, this is a smart dude. Look at his bio. Listen to him. Like, But it's so great because you make them really, they're graceful and they're easily digestible. And uh, you engage common questions. And then you walk through different types of mental illness and um, just how we can engage and love you, like explain them. And then you help us learn more how we can walk alongside both parents and the child who's wrestling with it. And I'm sure everyone listening today knows knows at least if if it doesn't affect their uh, personal family, but at least knows someone in their church family with a child with autism. Um, I, maybe it's just me. I, I don't always know how to engage. Like, how, how do I love these parents well, as well as these, the, the kids? Like, what what's appropriate? What's not? Well, you know, I think, you know, it's going to, there's going to be some variability from family to family. Obviously, some families are going to be very open about their child's uh, struggles and, and others aren't. And so I think you really have to kind of feel out the family. Uh, you know, it, it's the reality is, is that, you know, a lot change and, and, uh, and growth always come out of relationships. And so, you know, just get to know the family. I mean, get to know them just as people and parents first. I mean, don't be that concerned about trying to, you know, help them or engage them with their child. But as you grow in that relationship, you'll, you'll find opportunities and I think another thing that people should realize is that, you know, these all of these issues, autism, you know, uh, depression, all these issues in children, uh, they're like anything else. I mean, the parents will struggle with stress. The parents will need a break. The parents will have financial issues. The parents will have conflict. I mean, they're going to have the same thing as if their child had cancer. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so anything that you can do that can help relieve some of that pressure, uh, you know, uh, offer to go buy groceries, uh, you know, have the youth group go mow their grass. I mean, it, there's all kinds of just little simple. A lot of times I'll just say, you know, small things matter. I mean, they really do. So you don't have to become an expert on autism. Uh, it certainly would be helpful if you could just be a listening ear and and listen to them discuss the their need for whatever or just be there to go to coffee with them or even just bring them coffee. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the you know mental health issues are often called the no casserole illness, huh. which means that nobody brings you a casserole. You know, when you tell everybody that your kid has autism or bipolar or whatever, but they all show up when you've got cancer or whatever. Uh, so you don't have to know anything about cancer to bring a casserole, and you don't really have to know anything about autism to help out and say, hey, I want to make dinner for you Friday night. What would you like me to bring? So that's not necessarily invasive or like too, I don't know, like I feel like I don't want to be like, oh, you poor parent, you know, but I, I guess if you're getting to know the parent and you're hearing them go, right. I'm dying, you can say like you would with any parent who, you know, we we don't have kids with uh, autism, but our kids can be a challenge. So if I'm saying I'm having a bad day, right. I'll take the casserole. Thank you. So you're saying it's not right. it's not necessary, not intrinsically offensive to be like, how can I come alongside you and care for you? Now, it sounds real dumb as I'm saying it. No, not at all. Because, <laughs> yeah, not at all, because I think most people are never going to ask that. Right. You know? and, and so if. Uh, you know, it's not like you, you know, like you said, it's not like you walk up and go, oh, you poor person. Yeah. Can I do something for you? You know, you're just saying, hey, you know what? I've gotten to know you and, you know, you're special to me and I'd really like to help you out. What could I do to make your week? I mean, that, I mean yeah, they may they may relate that to their autistic child. They may not. Um, I think. But again, it's, it's a lot of times out of relationship. I think yeah. that's when it's real and it's sincere. Uh, you know, if some just some in essence stranger walks up to them and go, "Oh, I saw your child in Sunday school. I really like to help you." I don't think that's received as well as the you know the family that invited them to you know all of them to go out to lunch. Uh, yeah. You know, the last two Sundays, or you invite them to go out to lunch and they go, "Oh, we can't really go," you know, because and no, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm you know it doesn't matter about your son. Bring him. I want him to be there. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. We're perfectly fine with that. You know, just being, you know, treating them like normal people. Yeah, I was actually going to say that. So you're telling me to just be a normal, kind, Christ-following right. person. <laughs> right. Well, I look at it this way. When somebody tells you they have cancer, you don't go out and learn about cancer so you can yeah. show them compassion and comfort. Mm. You do You do dumb things like bring casseroles. Yep. And you know what they, they take from that? They think, you know what? They don't know what to do, but they care. Yeah. Yep. And that's what matters. That's really great. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, the importance of, of connection and, and really just Absolutely. Having, having a real relationship with, with real, real issues, <laughs> like with just being able to bring a casserole or, hey, I can come help you fold laundry or whatever, like... Okay, so we live in this society, though, that's becoming more and more disconnected. It's becoming more mm-hmm. kind of isolated and in, ingrained in our own kind of private spaces. And I, I guess, like in, in recent years, there, there has been a massive increase, like 37% increase in major depressive episodes in teens. And I mean, a lot of times when, when I 
you know, hear about this, I, I think, wow, there must be something to this disconnection piece. And, and I guess from your perspective, like, why has there been such an increase in this depression and, and kind of just the, the, the mental illness in general, but specifically with this like feeling of overwhelming, like loneliness and isolation and, and everything that goes along with it. Right. No, I really think it is. It does. I think it's a complex phenomenon, but I think disconnection plays a significant role. I, I think that our, our children, our adolescents, they, their, ex, their belief or perception is that they are more greatly connected. So they, they, they will explain that to you. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm always connected. I'm always talking. I'm always engaged. But the reality is that the, you know, social media gives us a very false sense of intimacy. We have lots of friends, but nobody knows us. We have lots of interactions, but nobody really hears us. And so it's a, you know, there is this disconnect, but then it's the same thing within families. I mean, parents come home and they get on their phones. I mean, there's no, there's no connection anymore. So that's definitely one issue. Children are not given the opportunity to express those, those problem feelings that they might be having, or even to learn how to appropriately express feelings. They don't get to, you know, talk it out with a parent or talk it out with a peer that's gone through similar things. I think another problem is that we have incredibly high levels of anxiety in our children and adolescents because of really unrealistic uh, expectations socially, academically, employment-wise. Uh, I mean, we're just crushing our children with anxiety, uh, and that's another significant issue that's going on. So I think you know those those things together uh, are really making a, a difference in, in the way our children kind of express themselves emotionally. And also, I think we're not teaching our children how to be resilient. Uh, which is something we used to teach them how now with the uh, helicopter parents and immediate gratification and, you know, nobody's, nobody loses, everybody wins, everybody gets the same thing. Uh, you know, that's what's fair. Uh, no one, no child knows how to deal with any kind of stressor. Uh, and so even small stressors cause them to completely fall apart. So you throw into that some biological vulnerability for a mental health problem. And the person, is, I mean, they're, uh, you know, they're already going to unfortunately win the mental illness race. They're already right at the finish line to start out. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, social media can be a wonderful thing or it can be a bad thing. Uh, so I really think that it's a, it's back to parents. Parents mm-hmm. have to be parents and they have to connect with their children. They have to limit social media. They have to be connected with their children's social media. And they have to l- help their children learn how to deal with difficult situations. Can you help us with that last one? Because like I hear beautiful themes of like teaching your kids resilience, but like how how does that conversation go? I'm thinking of the parent of the 13 year old who, you know, maybe maybe they're listening to this podcast because we do often talk about sexuality. And so they're like, okay, I'll help them there. But then they see signs of depression or anxiety and they're seeing their kid constantly on their phone and then they're listening to us right now and they're battling shame. (laughs) So how like how does that conversation start? Does it start with like taking the phone and flushing it down the toilet? Like how, how do we do that? Well, I think that conversation has to start long before 13. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think that, I mean, again, I know I'll, I'll come back to 13. Cause I know yeah. there's people out there listening that they have the 13 year old. They haven't had that conversation, but it has to start earlier. I mean, it has to start with, uh, you know, early on when the child's six, seven, years old and in helping them understand that, you know, 
the world is a fallen place. You know, there are there are mean people in the world, and and uh, their ide- their identity is in Christ. Their identity is not in what people think about them. Uh, that how they are loved unconditionally by God. That a parent loves them based on the fact that they are their parent and they're the, and they're a gift from God, not because of their performance. Parents have to be careful not to fall yeah. into that performance trap and mm-hmm. overreact to bad. You know, a kid who gets a bad grade when he's in the fourth grade is not destined to be a wino under a bridge. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, but we act like they are. So, so you have to really. You know, it has to be an unconditional kind of acceptance environment that you build within the house. Now, at 13, I think, you know, if you haven't had those conversations, I think you have to sit down and you have to say, hey, here's what I did wrong. Here's what I've done wrong. I focus too much on performance. And the reality is that's not what that's not how God loves us. And that's not how I love you. And I want you to understand that. Hmm. And I want you to help me do a better job in that. And I do think that you have to be a parent. You have to say, hey, you know what? Social media in and of itself isn't a horrible thing, but too much social media is a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the data shows that. Uh, and children that are prone to depression or have depression traits, they are drawn ever further into isolation through social media. And so, you know, I think you have to make sure that your, your children have healthy physical relationships. Uh, you know, that they are spending the night at, at kids' houses, that they're having friends over, that they're not just texting their friends, that they are involved in extracurricular activities, that they understand what it is to lose a basketball game, not just play a basketball game and no one keeps score. Hmm. You know, I mean, that they, you know, and that you're there for them to talk through. I mean, yes, they're going to have they're going to have hurt in difficult times. But that's what it is to be a parent. That's walking them through that. Uh, and I think a lot of times we do things as parents to make ourselves feel better. Uh, not so much what, what we do is, you know, we give the child what they want because it makes us feel better. Or now they have that status or they're not whining or whatever, as opposed to is it the right thing for the child? I think we don't have a lot of distress tolerance ourselves. Oh, snap. Uh, and so we just have to kind of get beyond that. Yeah, but, yep. Feel a little conviction there, Matt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got four kids myself. So, I mean, I, I know it, it's tough. I mean, it really is tough. I've got a girl and three boys. and But, yeah. you know, like, for instance, tonight, I mean, one of the things kids don't do anymore is spend the night at kids' houses. Mm-hmm. They don't do it. Uh, my my son, he's spent the night at his friend's house tonight. His, his friend spent the night here last night. I mean, you know, they when when his friend was here, uh, I mean, they're wrestling in the you know the thirteen year old boys. They're wrestling on the floor. They're destroying my house. That's great. That's better than him sitting in his room and with the lights out texting people. Yeah. And and you know we we have to make sure that we make opportunities for that because we're losing that as a as a culture. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I know some of the reason for that is because, I mean, there's a ton of horror stories about what goes on at, you know, sleepovers and stuff. There's, there's people who right. say it like, yeah. oh, my kid's not going to do that because, you know, maybe sexual assault or something is, is, is in their past or, or is something that someone from the family has experienced. And, and I guess that, that desire to keep your kids safe is an overwhelming thing for, for most parents. Like it's something we go crazy about, right? you know, but, but how do you, how do you create these opportunities while also maintaining a sense of like, okay, it's not also, it's not a free for all in that direction either. Like you, 
Right. You want to know the family. That's a good going question. To. I mean, I think you have to, I mean, you have to first accept this fact. It is a fallen world. Yeah. And there are horrible things that happen in this world. They're going to happen no matter what you do for your child. You lock your kid in the closet. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be horrible things. And that's one the horrible day, thing. That actually is the horrible thing. <laughs> yeah. And that's a horrible thing. Yeah. yeah. And one day they're going to have to interact with those horrible things in some. It's either now or later. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, like this, where my son spent the night tonight. I mean, we know the family. My wife had a conversation with the mother just specifically about them spending the night that, you know, they let their child sleep over here. I mean, they, we, you know, it's, I would not let my son sleep over at a house that I didn't know the family, but I would have to go get to know the family. Yeah. I mean, that's something the parent has to do. That's the, you have to do that ahead of time. Mm. You know, not, not when the guy and your son comes home and says, Hey, can my son's come home and said, Hey, I want to go spend the night over at so-so's house. And I'm like, who is that? Right. Oh, you know, he's in my so-and-so class. I'm like, I don't know his family. We're not going to do that. Mm. So let's have their family over for dinner. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you, you've got to, you, you know, again, I know there's parents out there like, going, oh my goodness, I've got to work and I got this and I got that. And my kid's doing so many activities. Well, see, that might be part of the problem too. I mean, I've fallen into that. My kids are all into sports. You know, I mean, I, my one son, I think he was on three baseball teams at one time because <laughs> he was really good at baseball. And you know what? That's it. Got too it got too much. We finally said you can you guys can only be on one team at a time. Hmm. You know, because it, it takes away from everything else. Uh, and you know, and it takes away from things like we all used to go to, like youth group and small group. And so you really have to prioritize those things. You prioritize your own relationship with your child. You prioritize your child's relationship with God. How are you going to help them build that? You prioritize their relationship, their physical relationship with other kids. Uh, And, you know, uh, somewhere down the line is school and academics and all that kind of stuff. But I think building those relationships with other families, it helps them understand, you know, when they see you building those relationships, they understand how to build those relationships. And those are the kind of things you pass on. Mm. Well, I'm hearing, honestly, this is such a good lesson for us as parents, and if you guys are not a parent, uh, I hope you're involved in kids' lives in the community that you're in, because um, we need you. We really do. Um, but what we need as people who are, are caring for kids is our own resilience. Like, that's such an undercurrent of everything you're saying is, okay, what's this? Why are you, we got to carve the space out? And Matt and I, we both, we pretty much share the parenting decently equally. We both work pretty much f- very full time. And then, so I hear that and I'm like, oh, I get to know the parents, but I am right there with you. I feel like we've interviewed enough people on this podcast at this point to be like, okay, then what do you need to cut out in order to be able to actually invest in people to love our neighbors and create community as opposed to just shut up kid and <laughs> here's your tablet. Yeah. We need to be inviting our kids into the type of connection that that we ourselves hopefully have yeah. as opposed to just right. saying, Absolutely. get off your phone and go find someone to play with when we're sitting there texting on our phone. Yeah. Ooh, snap. Right. Can you help 
me with this one, which you didn't, you, you taught, you touched on PTSD in your book, uh, but not necessarily, at least not from what I saw in my reading of it, uh, specifically about sexual assault, but like more and more parents, um, I've had them come to me and talk about how their kid, uh, has been assaulted and they're coming forward to them. So like, I've, I've heard a lot of adult survivors talk about this, you know, there's books written, I've talked about it, my own pain, uh, but with other parents that are coming to us with their young kids and these kids are exhibiting depression, anxiety, or specifically PTSD, can you help us as parents, as church leaders, as people with kids in our community? What help? Like, th- th- where's the book on that? How, help us. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it's a hard one. I mean, I think that, you know, number one, as as you've probably heard many times before, but you really have to make sure that you're uh, accepting of, of them coming forward, that you believe them, that, I mean, the default should always be you believe a child yeah. until it's proven that it, it did that it was not true. I mean, that with children, you know, the data shows us children just do not make these things up. It's not to say that that's never happened. It's just, that's the vast minority of, of things that the the children, when they express these things, they usually have occurred. And so you have to be very accepting, not blaming. Uh, I think that you have to be, uh, you do have to take the child's uh, uh, kind of get their input on how much they want it shared. You know, mm. uh, certainly, you know, do they want that shared with relatives or they want, who are they comfortable with you? You have to really respect their privacy to some extent. And that go- depends, again, somewhat on how what age the child is. And I think really the thing I really want to emphasize to parents is you, you desperately need to get your child into some type of mental health care with someone who is an expert in trauma. Mm. I think that's the mistake that I find, you know, I, I, I will see more often is that, you know, a family will come to us and they'll say, well, you know, this happened to her a few years ago and we got her some counseling and, you know, she just really, you know, she's just still a mess. She never really seemed to move beyond it. You know, well, who was the counselor? Well, it was, you know, it was this lady that we knew uh, that, you know, she goes to our church. She's a Christian counselor. Well, is she expert in trauma? Mm. I don't know. You know, and it, so you really need to find someone who has worked with a, a, a child of the age of your child who has been traumatized the way your child has been traumatized. So someone who's an expert in, in sexual assault or and uh, that type of trauma. And you certainly can find them. That, that's not the issue. They're out there. It's just that you don't just take that person to just the local Christian counselor who you like. Yeah. You want to find someone who is, you know, really can help them walk through uh, that and process that. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, I deal with mostly with adults and, you know, I see the, what the long-term effects of not mm-hmm. dealing with that turn into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you've got your 32 year old woman who's now been through multiple bad relationships and is a substance user and has all types of issues. Uh, and she doesn't even realize anymore that it's because she was sexually assaulted when she was eight years old, yeah, you know, she just thinks she makes bad decisions. Mm. Uh, and so now you've got all of those years of kind of continuing secondary kinds of trauma that you have to work through to try to, to help her move forward. So, uh, you know, it's a horrible thing when it happens, but it's, it's so much better to deal with it early and to kind of push it 
back, which I think a lot of parents just want to do. And, and I understand that from a human perspective, uh, because there is no just get over it or mm-hmm. they'll just get over it or time heals all wounds. Uh, you know, it uh, it has to be processed and dealt with so that you can can live beyond it. Mm. Ugh, so needed. I I want to step back a second just to ask again about teens and mental health, specifically anxiety, depression. And I want to look at the youth pastors who might be listening or youth workers. And, you know, it it seems like almost every other teenager is wrestling with anxiety or depression, or at least most of them. And the statistics are pretty close to that. Can you can you help the youth pastor who's staring at a bunch of anxious and depressed kids? What what can what role can he play? Well, he has a huge role to play, and 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 I will tell you that our data from studies that I've done suggests that you know youth pastors are seeing these issues at rates four and five times beyond what they occur in the general population. Wow! Uh, you know, I mean, the survey of youth pastors that we did. Over 80% said they were at the present time working with a a, a a teen congregate that was diagnosed with depression. I mean, depression doesn't exist at over 80% in the teen population. I mean, that's unbelievable. So, so we we've seen that time and time again. So, I think oh. the first thing you have to understand, or they have to think about, is this: Yeah, teenage years are an anxious time, and, in, and they're very dramatic, and a lot of mood swings, and they're all over the place. I mean, I got a 13-year-old in the house right now. I mean, he, you know, that's how he is. But the you, you really have to separate out the what the difference between those that are dealing with normal teenage issues uh, and just kind of what you would think of as normal mood mood issues and and anxiety, and those who've crossed a line to disorder or who are getting close to that line. So you're really looking at the, the difference between someone who's functional and who's not. Uh, and we always kind of talk about the the big three of kind of your functional spheres of your, your uh, relationships, your job and your, and your school. So it is the depression or the anxiety that you're struggling with causing you not to be able to function normally in relationships, in your job or in your school. And so those are the kind of questions you need to be asking to say, you know, how is, well, I see you're really down. You know, how is that affecting you? Is that affecting your ability to maintain your relationships? Is it been affecting you in school? If they have a job, does it affect them on the job? I mean, is it affecting them in their relationship to their parents? If you're seeing that it it goes beyond just kind of like, well, I'm down, but I kind of work through it. You know, I'm able to get my stuff done. I'm just kind of down right now. Uh, you know, that's not as big a deal as if they say, well, yeah, you know, I just find that I'm always isolating myself now. I don't really have many friends anymore. I mean, now you're crossing over into kind of dysfunction. And that's the child you really need to worry more about. Mm. Uh, now, obviously, there's a progression uh, and you have to be watching for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, isolation, uh, you know, uh, a lot of irritability, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, changes in weight changes in sleep patterns. You want to be watching for them to cross over that line because that's where you really need to bring in a mental health care provider. But prior to that, it's just helping them understand what, you know, what are the normal issues related to the teen years? Uh, you know, we all remember that, you know, you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and it's like, that's it. I'll never have another mm-hmm. relationship. That was the person I was supposed to be with the rest of my life. I'm 15 years old and that was it, you know? So, 
Uh, and that can seem pretty dramatic, but, uh, you know, it looks different when it's, when it's disorder. Uh, and so I really just think that's the kind of thing that you need to, uh, to watch for. Uh, one of the things that I think youth pastors can do is they can just, they can get uh, some additional training uh, on how to recognize these things. Cause remember youth pastors are on, they are the front line because between 14 and 24 years old, that's the onset of most of these major mental health problems. And that's who the youth pastors see. Hmm. That's really important. Now, pastors who are listening and um, they're like, okay, I already have budgets. I have all these things I got to do. Why do I need to like study this? Why do I need to read a book about kids and mental health? Can you just give one more little nod to them as far as, all right, I know this is, a, this is another thing, but it's really an important thing. Why, why do they need to care? Well, I mean, I'd say two things. One it's not an issue of whether you want to deal with this. It's, it's an issue of whether you're going, you're either going to deal with it or you're going to ignore it because the data from the national Institutes of health show that people that are struggling with these problems are more likely to come to a clergy before they go to a mental health care provider physician. And a majority of people in the United States that are struggling with these problems, uh, majority never receive any treatment. In fact, 50% of children and adolescents with these problems never receive any treatment. So it's a divine opportunity that God is giving us. They are coming to churches first. That's, that was not something that just I found. The National Institute of Health found that. We've known it for 50 years. Mm. Every year it's the same. People are more likely to go to clergy. So they're coming. Now, the sad thing is less than 10% of clergy ever make a referral mm. to a mental health care provider. So they're not getting recognized. So that's the first thing I would say to clergy, and that is God is sending them to us. And so I think it's an opportunity for us to really respond in a way that the world hasn't been able to respond. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, secondly, you know, we're not just a source for referral for these individuals. We are a healing community that they can recover in uh, and that they can become part of and they can have support for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, this is a real evangelistic opportunity to just come along a broken person and say, this is a safe place for you. Uh, to heal. And I'm going to help connect you to mental health care, but I'm also going to walk along with you and we're going to be here to support you and your family and care for you because that's what a church does. Uh, and this is a congregational issue. This isn't a clergy issue. So get your congregation involved, get a lay counseling team together, uh, get some of your congregants trained on how to help you make referrals and to vet mental health care providers. Don't just try to do this on your own. If you try to do it on your own, you're just going to burn yourself out. Get your congregation involved. Mm. That is so good. And we say that, don't we, Matt? You're usually the one who like preaches that sermon as a therapist. <laughs> is you, do you want to say it? Do you want to say your lines? Well, I don't, I don't know my lines in particular, but yeah, just the importance that when you're referring out to, to still be a part of the process, like, yeah, you don't have to be the expert, but you still have a really important role in walking alongside because otherwise it can just be another isolating instance in the person's life where it's like, you're too much. You need to go see someone over there and I don't want to deal with you. Mm. We right. need each other. We need the church. Last question for you, Matt. Uh, and I just so appreciate your pastoral and just mental health care perspective. It's just critical 
tightrope and just a needed balance. But to the parents listening who, again, are just perhaps tuning in because they feel just the weight of their child's brokenness and maybe specifically people listening feel like their kid's mental health is really taking over their whole family's life. Can you look them in the eye and maybe in the heart and say something to them? You don't have to do this on your own. Uh, you know, if you choose to do it on your own, there's there's nothing we can do to help you. But there are resources and uh, these issues are treatable. And so we there's support and care for you. There's support and care for your child. Uh, you're just going to have to be an advocate for your child. I'm not going to say it's easy because our mental health care system is a very disjointed set of kind of resources out there. It's not a real connected system. But there are uh, treatments that are effective. There is support for you. So number one, first thing I would do, get yourself in a support group. Call your local NAMI or, or a local organization that offers support groups for caregivers and, and get support for yourself because if you burn yourself out and you're not able to function, there's nobody there for your child. Uh, and then begin to find some uh, quality care for your child, a quality therapist, quality child and adolescent psychiatrist, and begin the process of recovery. It's a process. When you're thinking about, when you're talking about mental health issues, you have to think about months to years. Don't think days to weeks. These are quick fix issues, but they can be managed. They can be treated effectively, uh, and your child can get better. Hmm. Man, Matt, thank you so much for encouraging us both with the practical, the theological, and and really just the, the psychological as well, because we are holistic beings, and we're also the whole family of God, which includes caring for our kids. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now, guys, we will link you up to all of the Matthew Stanford things, including this book and the other one you mentioned just about really caring for adults who are wrestling with mental illness and, and how we can do that in a graceful way as a church. But it's really important stuff. And we have some important stuff coming your way. There's events that are posting that we're doing as a, our ministry, trying to teach the church how to walk with sexuality, a gospel approach to sexuality. And so we're really excited about them. Uh, we're doing some marriage stuff. We're still doing our Journey Well workshop. So check out our events at lauricreek.com slash events. We got a question of the week for next week. And maybe it's the same as your hack. I don't know. Kitchen gadget. So that's what I want to know. What's your favorite kitchen gadget? I already know Matt's. It's literally all of them. <laughs> he loves a gadget. And I'm like, give me a knife and some duct tape and my coffee pot and I'm fine. No, except the KitchenAid. Yeah, we'll talk about it next week. Okay, guys, we want to know yours. You can find us on the socials or you can email us at podcast at lorikrieg.com. But that's it for today. Thanks, guys, for being a part of the whole In My Heart family. For all of us here, we'll see you next week. 